If you can open your Bible to James chapter 1. And while you're doing that, I just wanted to warmly welcome anyone who's relatively new again. Um, my name is John, and I've been a member of this church for a number of years now. Um, and it is a privilege, a real privilege of mine, and a joy to be able to open up God's Word with you this afternoon. And I want to begin our time together by reading the last section of James chapter 1. So I'm going to begin in verse 19 and read down to the end of the chapter. James says in verse 19, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It was last August when we celebrated our, our son's birthdays and they were turning four and five at the time. And I guess it's one of the advantages of having two boys that are born in the same month and a year apart is we can just mash their birthdays together and they're typically okay with that. And for the last couple of years, um, we've been trying to find a park outdoors where we can bring our family together and have activities for the kids and we can play soccer and and baseball and last year we decided to have more of an Olympic theme party so we organized some races for the adults and the kids and my family's large enough that we can do something like that and I loved running as a kid I loved to compete especially in those shorter sprints and so I was going into this pretty confident um, and I was thinking you know I can just kind of jog my way through this and maybe show my kids a little bit what daddy can do so I'm in the first heat if you can call it that. And I'm, I'm lined up against um, one of my brothers and a few of my nieces who are in their mid to late teens and we get settled on the line and, and the whistle go goes and I would say within about 10 or 15 meters of this race, I look over and, and my brother, he's going like full tilt, like he's taking this seriously. And you have to understand that my brother <clears throat> has about nine years on me. So I'm thinking to myself, I'm not going to let my 50-year-old brother beat me in this race in front of my kids. So I get my act together and I start picking up speed. And I would say maybe the midway point in this race, maybe 30 or 40 meters in, I all of a sudden begin feeling this awful and sharp pain in the back of my right leg. And I have no choice. I, I, I end up pulling up, I fall to the ground, the race is obviously over for me. And the next thing I know is I'm being carried off of this field and this is, this is not a good moment. 
here I am thinking, you know, my kids are going to sing my praises, and lo and behold, I'm flat on my back for the rest of the, the afternoon. And my family, they're looking at me like, who do you think you are? I mean, you're, you're not some 20-year-old athlete training for the Olympics. You can't pull that stuff off. You're, you're deceived. And they were right. I mean, I, I convinced myself to believe something that wasn't true of me. I, I wasn't as fit as I thought. I was self-deceived. And I know many Christians today have also deceived themselves, thinking that they're a whole lot more mature than they actually are. And that's not just because of what we see out there. That's actually what James is concerned about in his epistle. Christians and just people in general who have deluded themselves. Three times in chapter 1, he uses the word deceived. And you may have caught this already, but twice in the passage that we read. And every time he uses it, he's not talking about you deceiving others or others deceiving you. He's talking about you deceiving you. At the end of verse 22, he says, deceiving yourselves. And then in the middle of verse 26, he says, but deceives his heart. Another translation says, deceives his own heart. I think everyone in this room... You can look back at a time in your life when you thought you were a whole lot more mature than you actually were. You didn't have an accurate pulse on your maturity, and you would have to conclude in that very moment that you were self-deceived. You fooled yourself. So in the same way that James is concerned for his readers, we need to be concerned for ourselves because we too might be experiencing self-deception regarding our own walk with the Lord. And because I know that we are a people who desire to grow in maturity, we need to know what that looks like and what it takes to further mature. We want to answer this question, what does real maturity look like? So from verses 19 through 21, our first point is this. I know I'm growing in maturity when I'm becoming a humble hearer of the Word. A humble hearer of the word. Right in the middle of verse 21, James says that we are to receive with meekness the implanted word. And maybe he's pulling from verse 18 when he says that it was the word of truth that was the instrument that God used to breathe new life into us by the power of the Holy Spirit. The word that has taken up residence in your life when you first came to Christ. And now James is saying, receive what you've already received. You've taken in the word, now continue to take it in, but do so with a spirit of meekness and, and gentleness and humility. A mark of maturity is one who has a receptive and teachable heart when it comes to the hearing of God's word. When you, when you sit with your Bible open, is there a willingness to be instructed and taught or corrected and rebuked? That's part of what it means to receive the word with meekness. Do you have that? Do you even want that? Some people might be content to remain just in the same condition that they're in, and that's evidenced by either not being part of a church, or if they're part of a church, not being involved in the life of the church, which is really demonstrating the opposite of humility, and that's pride, because it's resistance to what God wants to do through the power of His Word. So you might be asking then, how do we cultivate and, and nurture this meekness and, and humility to receive the Word? And I think James gives us some really practical and specific ways that brings that about. And he says that the ground for work for that is firstly being patient. 
In verse 19, it says that every person must be quick to hear and slow to speak. If we're asking James, what do I have to do to foster humility before the Word? I don't think James can be more precise and practical in what needs to happen. Generally speaking, we need to be attentive listeners and thoughtful communicators. That is what is preparing my heart to humbly receive the Word of God. And I think he's just pulling from the wisdom in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 10, verse 19, it'll be up on the screen here. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Chapter 13 and verse 3, whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. And then chapter 17, verse 27 and 28, whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. I don't think James is any, in any way advocating for silence. I don't think that's what he's doing. In fact, I think we should embrace how God has uniquely created us with different personalities, and some speak more than others, and that's all necessary for the building up of the body. But I think what we should always be considering is what we say and when we say it and who we say it to and knowing when we shouldn't say anything because of our need to hear others. And these are just some really helpful ways that we can approach a Bible study or, or small group and say, I'm going to commit to being a more effective contributor to this group because being slow to speak and quick to hear is working towards the greater good of humility before the Word of God. That is how I can grow in that regard. I want to be attentive to others and not pretend to listen while thinking of what I want to say next. Or maybe for you, it's that email that needs a second look. Or maybe a fresh set of eyes. Or that social media post that, quite frankly, should probably never be posted if you have to think twice about it. Proverbs 29, verse 20 says, Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. We need to train ourselves to be quick listeners and careful in our speech that our minds are ready for when we sit before the Word of God and, and are prepared to take it in. And I think it's important right now just to remember who James exactly was. He's the half-brother of the Lord. He, he's a man who grew up with Jesus. He ate meals with Him. He played with Him. He slept next to Him. And I'm sure many times he would hear his mother say, you know, why can't you be like your brother? Why can't you just be perfect? Jesus modeled every virtue to perfection, so it was in this area of being slow to speak and quick to hear. And although James, he refused to believe in Christ for many years, I'm sure just in writing this, he would remember of how Jesus was with him and with others as he was so quick to listen attentively and how patiently he dealt with those who were in need, even with young children. If you want a good indication of how well you're doing in hearing and speaking, how do you deal with kids? You say, I, I don't deal with them, and I don't plan to. Or maybe for you, it's, I got enough of them at home. 
I don't have the patience to deal with someone else's. I think sometimes we can act like the disciples, where on one occasion they began rebuking parents for bringing their children to Jesus, and it says that Jesus was indignant with the disciples. And he says, hold on, you bring them to me. I'll be patient. I'll listen to their stories and their questions and give them the time and the affection that's needed because unless you come to, the, come to me like one of them, you have no part in the kingdom. And this is not a pitch for redemption, kids. This, this is an appeal to be cultivating a Christ-like patience with all people, with everyone. Because this is paving the way for a heart that is humbly receiving the word. And I know that even as I say this, there, there is a real wrestling in my own heart as I, as I recognize, recognize my own shortcomings in being an intentional listener and a restrained speaker. I get it. But if I can just address people who think that they're good listeners of God, but they don't find it necessary to listen to the counsel of others. The Bible actually teaches a direct correlation of being a quick hearer of God and our ability to listen to the wisdom of one another. Proverbs, 8, Proverbs 11 verse 14 says, Where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. If you claim to be a hearer of God, God is telling you to seek guidance from others. The amount of times, especially in the last couple of years, where we have seen people develop opinions and convictions and have made choices upon their life with massive implications and yet an, not an ounce of godly wisdom is being sought outside of their four walls. Hebrews tells us that we are to obey our leaders and submit to those who are guardians over our souls. How are you doing in that area? You know, one thing that I love about this church is that we have elders and pastors who put themselves out there every single week and say, you want to talk? Let's talk. Let's talk. We have maybe almost 50 small group leaders sitting right here in this room who have been raised up to apply God's Word to our lives and others who are equipped to do the same. Are you making the most of the resources that God has graciously given us right here? To be honest, I think, generally speaking, this church excels in that area. Generally speaking. You know, I was sitting with a friend recently from this church, and, and I had to commend him, and I said, I, I feel like you have a, such a tender heart to hear biblical wisdom from others. Such a, a receptive ear. If you're known as someone who listens to God, you're also known as having a quick ear in listening to the people of God and those who are modeling godliness. It's a mark of growing in humility and maturing in Christ. If we're going to be humble here, as James is calling us to be patient, but secondly, peaceable. At the end of verse 19, he says that we should not only be slow to speak, but slow to anger. To my shame, <clears throat> I used to think that Anger was just one of those sins that just a small minority of Christians struggled with, and, and it would have to appear in very specific ways. It would have to show up in, in very particular ways, but when you really diagnose your own heart, 
you see that the, the sin of anger abounds more than you ever want to believe. In a book titled Uprooting Anger, the author had this to say. This quote will be up on the screen. He says, Anger is a universal problem, prevalent in every culture, experienced by every generation. No one is isolated from its presence or immune from its poison. It permeates each person and spoils our most intimate relationships. Anger is a given part of our fallen human fabric. And then he adds this, sadly, this is true even in our Christian homes and churches. You say, I still don't get angry. Listen to what the Bible links with anger. Resentment, bitterness, enmity, hostility, grudges, strife, jealousy, unforgiveness, slander, obscene talk, lust. The list goes on. All of those are laced with anger. And maybe you know that this is a part of your life, but you say, well, that's the, the, the only way I can function. This is how I'm effective at work. I get angry and people listen to me. Or this is how I get the attention of my spouse or my kids. I get angry and it works. And it may work. It may work to get them to do what you want them to do. But James is saying it's not going to work towards the greatest good of producing a righteous life and of God's design purposes of godliness. It's not going to work towards that end. Your anger, as one translation says, is not bringing about the righteous life that God desires. Or to say it the opposite way, a righteous life does not result from a raging heart. So when we continue in our anger, we either don't esteem righteousness enough to stop, we don't esteem righteousness enough to stop our anger, and we're more content and satisfied with, with bitterness and resentment than with pleasing the Lord. Or maybe we think that our way of producing righteousness is better than God's way. So I'll get angry. And the Bible says that's foolishness, to think that we can produce righteousness in others through the unrighteous anger of our life. It's like turning to an angry child and telling them with complete rage to stop getting angry. It's foolishness. And that's why the proverb says that it's the what? The soft answer that turns away wrath. You say, what do I do then? If my anger is getting in the way of receiving the word, what do I do? And if I can put it this way, we need to recognize, remember, and repent. Recognize that this is an area in your life, just like the rest of us in this room, that demands our attention. None of us are immune to anger. Then secondly, remember, remind yourself of the gospel. In Ephesians 4, Paul says that we are to put away bitterness and wrath and anger. And then he says that we are to do that by remembering how God in Christ has treated us. And not only what he did, but how he did it. That when he was oppressed and he, he was afflicted, he opened not his mouth. We go to him to forgive us of, of anger, but also the example of how to respond when we're tempted to get angry. It's the gospel that gives us victory over 
our anger. And so we beg God to thirdly produce the fruit of repentance as we are brought under the control of the Holy Spirit. James says that if we are to be humble hearers of the word, we need to be patient and peaceable and thirdly pure. Verse 21 says that we must put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Imagine someone says, you know, I'm reading my Bible every day. I'm coming to church on Sundays and I'm even listening to sermons throughout the week and and I'm praying, but I'm just not growing. I'm not maturing. I'm not getting anything out of it. And James is giving insight into what may be happening. And he says the reason why you're unable to hear anything is because you're trying to listen to the Word while you're indulging in sin. You will not experience growth unless you're prepared to remove the garbage in your life that's preventing you from hearing the Word and you're making it so hard for yourself. James uses the word for filthiness in chapter 2 when he says that a man, he walks into your assembly and he's wearing shabby clothing. Dirty and filthy clothing. In fact, one commentator pointed out that the root of this word was used in a medical sense referring to earwax. Not the most pleasant illustration, but that's the point, right? You have filth clogging up your ears, and that's why you're, you're not hearing properly. You need to get rid of it. You need to put it off if, if you're expecting to hear and mature. We are to strive for the holiness, the writer of Hebrews says. We are to strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You cannot experience the fullness of His person in the Word or be transformed into greater degrees of Christ's likeness if you're not putting off the sin in your life. And I don't know exactly what James may be referring to and the specific sins, but there is a parallel passage in 1 Peter chapter 2 that will be up on the screen here, and I think it will help us. It says in verse 2, like newborn babes, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Very similar to James. He's saying that there is a humility that is, that is required in longing and receiving the word. But right before that, in verse 1, he says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. You need to put off the sin of speaking poorly of others and not desiring good for them. It's all hindering your ability to hear the Word of God. It's deafening your ear. In Acts chapter 8, Peter generally explains wickedness as an area in your life that is just, it's not right before the Lord. And you know what that is, and God is calling you to put it off. Spiritual maturity is not about how many Bible studies you're leading, how many times you're up on stage. There there is not a shortage of individuals that we have seen who have been proclaimers of the Word of God for decades and have chosen to hide rampant wickedness and filthiness from their life. God says in Isaiah 66, this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Those who pursue patience and peace and purity. 
You want to know if you're growing in maturity, are you becoming a humble hearer of the word? But secondly, are you becoming a diligent doer of the word? James is saying, beginning in verse 21, that you need to be a hearer, but you can't just be a hearer. It's not enough. Maybe some of you can resonate with this, but I, I used to be a conference hopper. I used to just go from one to the next. You know, sitting through one and just booking the next one. And if I were to say something to my younger self, I'd probably say, you know, at some point, John, you're going to need to start putting into practice some of the things you've been hearing because otherwise, James is saying, it's only a matter of time before you begin to deceive yourself into being someone that you're really not. It's not enough to be a hearer. In fact, on one occasion, Jesus says that everyone who hears and does not do is no different than a man who builds his house on the, on the sand. And that man, says Jesus, is a fool. And I think that perfectly describes the people that James is telling us about in verses 23 and 24. Someone who looks at a mirror, they walk away and then forget what they look like. One paraphrase put it this way. It says, he sees himself, it is true, but he goes on without whatever he was doing, without the slightest recollection of what sort of person he saw in the mirror. They perceive things about themselves. They notice that something requires attention, but then they walk away as if they never saw anything. And I think this can show up in a variety of ways. And I'll be honest, I think... I can be better at evaluating a sermon than examining myself in light of a sermon. You know, Pastor Ian, he, he gets up, and as he normally does, he, he preaches a grand slam of a sermon, and, and I walk out of here, and I'm like, man, that was awesome. That was so good. But James is asking me, well, what are you going to do about it? You're just going to sit there and admire it? What are you going to do? It's amazing. Every time Jesus spoke, he would astound people with his words. And, and on one occasion, while he was teaching, a woman must have been just so enamored with his teaching, and she raised her voice and she said, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. And do you remember what Jesus said to her? He said, No. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Blessed, rather, are those who hear the Word of God and obey it and do something about it. Are we going to be a people who see and know things about the truth of our lives and do nothing about it? Or are we going to look into the perfect law of liberty, the Word of God, that not only has the power, as James says, to save us, but to transform us and then do what it says? That's where the blessing is, in hearing and remembering and obeying. And for the second time here, J James uses the word forget. And I think there is something to be said here. You know, imagine a husband comes home to his wife and, and he says, Sorry, honey, I, I forgot it was our anniversary. Again. Poor guy, right? You know, at some point, forgetting is no longer an acceptable excuse. Because what's the real issue? 
The real issue is you don't care enough to remember. It's not a priority for you. And this was the problem with the people of Israel. God continually told them to remember what He had done, but every time they forgot, it was, it was because their love exceeded, their love for things exceeded their love for God. Very often, forgetting is an indication that our affections have been misplaced. We've redirected our affections to other things rather than placing it on God. It's no longer acceptable to be forgetful here, as James says, but we need to be effective, diligent doers of the Word. And maybe you're wondering, what should I be doing then? What should I be doing? And James is is glad we asked because he gives us three things that we can be doing beginning in verse 26. And it begins with having a controlled tongue. And he's going to keep coming back to this. If you think you're truly religious, but your tongue is unrestrained, you've deceived yourself. Your religion is worthless because your words are an indication of your heart. And I think what James is doing is he's picking up on Matthew chapter 12 when Jesus says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Because do you remember who Jesus was speaking to? Those who thought that they were religious. The Pharisees and scribes. And yet the corruption of their mouths revealed a deceived heart. James says in chapter 3 that those who bridle their tongues are considered mature because the tongue exposes the condition of our hearts, which is why we need to fill our minds with the things of the Word and we need to stop reading and looking at things that will pollute our minds and our hearts. Someone was telling me recently that every time they listen to the news, they just start complaining, and they just concluded that, well, maybe I should just stop reading the news. And it may come down to those just simple practices that we need to take. And then doing what Psalm 119 says, to store up the Word in our hearts that we would not sin against the Lord. Because the only things that are coming out of my mouth are the things that I'm putting in my mind. Secondly, James says that we need to have a compassionate heart. He says in verse 27 that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And he's using the word religion to describe the purest form of worshiping God. And and why do you think he boils it down to this? Why is visiting orphans and widows one of the richest forms of worship? Orphans were those who were deprived of parents, either through death or abandonment. And widows were left without a husband. And so these two categories of people in ancient society were considered and known as the most helpless. And this is why one of the commands that God gives the people of Israel in Exodus 22 is that you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. But listen to this. The reason why God even gives us that command is because this is the heart of God. He is, the psalmist says, the father to the fatherless and protector protector of widows. He is the one who executes justice on behalf of those who are vulnerable and helpless. 
And he did this so mercifully when he came down in very appearance as a man and he humbled himself by taking the form of a servant, suffering at the hands of those who he came to rescue so that he could redeem a people for himself who were lost, helpless, without any hope, and afflicted. He is the ultimate father to the fatherless and defender and protector of widows. I can't help but think that perhaps James uses this word visit in verse 27 because it reminds him of the repeated reference in the Bible to God's redeeming work. Even as he thought of his own salvation. We don't exactly know when James came to faith in Christ. But it does say in 1 Corinthians 15 that after Jesus' resurrection, that Jesus appeared to, to Paul and he appeared to the disciples, but he also appeared to James. And maybe it was in that moment when he locks eyes with the resurrected Lord and no longer sees him as his half-brother or just a teacher among others or a prophet among others, but he sees him, as he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, as the Lord Jesus Christ, the God of glory, the sovereign Lord who is above all. Maybe, maybe it was in that moment that God visited his heart. And maybe for someone here, this is your moment. Where just like James, you can't escape the truth of who Christ is and you bow your knee to him and you turn from your sin, embracing the mercy and compassion that God has extended through our Savior, Jesus Christ. God visited your heart and mine when we were afflicted. And I think James is now saying that true worship of God is to be like God. That is why it is so rich to extend compassion and mercy in the very same way that God has shown you. And for some of us here, it could come in the form of fostering or adopting such a precious way of, of demonstrating who God is. But for most of us here, it needs to come in the form of caring for those who have lost loved ones or, or seeing those who have been neglected or abandoned and you pour out your heart and compassion upon them. And I'll be honest, I've seen this happen so many times in the life of this church. In all kinds of ways, and I can't help but just remind you just to continue in that because this is the heart of God. To bring hope and healing to the helpless. But lest we think that true worship is summed up in external acts of service, James reminds us thirdly that we need to have a consecrated life to keep ourselves unstained from the world. Because if we're going to be effective, whether it's in a ministry of mercy or in sharing the gospel, it can't happen unless our life is set apart before him. In, in chapter 4, in verse 4, James says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. You can't befriend the world and its pleasures and still be God's friend. The kind of life that we lead needs to be distinctly different than what we're seeing in the world. So what James is saying here is that the true worship of God is to be like God as we pursue His very holiness. To be holy as He is holy. 
Psalm 51 verse 7 says, A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is what maturity looks like. Real maturity. A humble hearer and a diligent doer of the word. Let's not be deceived. Whether it's in running, but more importantly, in living that righteous life. And doing so, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, by laying aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus, both as our Savior and Lord, but also as our example, the one who we pattern our life after and who is the person and object of our eternal worship. 